was Bond. James Bond. Japanese proverbs say, bird never make nest in bear tree. Just a slight stiffness coming on. Your cellos are Stradivarius. I'm just up here at Oxford, brushing up on a little Danish. You know what I can do with my little finger. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Roger Moore's Cubbyhole, episode number 25. This is the global podcast that guides you gracefully around the gripping goings-on of a good-looking, gallant and guarded guy who's been gunning goons galore from Goldfinger to Goldeneye, from the Golden Grotto to Giza. Yes, it's the great James Bond 007. Uh, I'm assuming there are no Die Another Day fans who are unhappy at me spurning Gustav Graves from the alliterative opening. Uh, I mean, there are no Die Another Day fans, so I think we're okay on that front. Uh, it's lovely to have you in the cubbyhole this week. We hope you're all well. As ever, your support for the podcast is very much appreciated, and we hope you've enjoyed all 24 of our Bond reviews so far, plus that special episode of Phil talking about the Aston Martin DB5. Uh, if you missed any of those previous episodes, then of course you're welcome to go back and catch up. We're available on all good podcasting platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and now for the first time on Amazon Music. Getting in touch with the show is just as easy. Head on over to Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for show updates, quizzes, and more. And feel free to leave us a comment or a direct message if there's any specific question or topic you'd like us to discuss in a future episode. Alternatively, you can contact us via email, rogermorescubbyhole at gmail.com. Now, in our previous episode, we discussed Bond number 24, Spectre, uh, a fairly controversial entry into the Bond series, hated by many Bond fans, presumably because of Blofeld's family ties with uh, with James Bond. But the, the Cubbyhole hosting team were generally pleased with the other aspects of the film, so we were willing to overlook that kind of Austin Powers moment. But this week, we embark on the first leg of a journey into the, the strange world of the unofficial Bond films. So it's all the way back to 1967. We have the spy spoof Casino Royale, starring David Niven as Sir James Bond. So with me to discuss this psychedelic 60s picture, it's the usual hosting team. Firstly, it's the man who has a very low threshold for death. His doctor says he can't have bullets enter his body at any time. It's Adam. How are you, Adam? I'm very good, thank you, Martin. Uh, looking forward, actually, to this uh, change of pace and tone with this new spoof uh, James Bond film. You've just stolen the best line in it, though. I mean, I mean, that's a big gambit early on to go with literally the best one-liner in the film. Well, yeah, I didn't have anything for Quantum of Solace today, and uh, there was there was not much material for this one either. <laughs> oh, I don't know. You could have attempted one of Peter Sellers' strange, dodgy accents in uh, the the Chifra Baccarat game. Maybe the Scottish, the, uh, the Sterling Moss impression would have been a little bit less controversial. You could have had a go at that based on your amazing Alan Bennett and Paddy McGuinness from last week. Yeah, based on that, I'll leave the uh, impressions to you, Adam. <laughs> OK, and uh, secondly, it's the man who's back with his morals, his vows and his celibate image. This podcast aims to destroy that image. It's Phil. How are you, Phil? Yes, thanks, Martin. Very good. I, I hasten to say looking forward to this week's episode. I'm, I'm going into it with a bit of trepidation, I think. And of course, at the time of recording, this is quite a, a somber week, really, because the day before we were due to record this, we heard of the um, sad news of the death of Sean Connery, who, of course, was the first person to bring Bond to the big screen. We're going to dedicate our Q branch segment this time to sort of Sean Connery and your shout outs. 
So we'll just go quickly through a few of your shout-outs from Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for the follows to Christina Wart, Ronald Wilson, uh, Tabor Shaw, and to Malcolm Perez, Goodbye Even, Pauli T, Retro House of Horror, Giampiero Ragnelli, Juicy Lucy, Carl Wright, and Robert Moore. We did have some great comments coming in for some of our previous episodes as well. So David Kaiser got in touch with us on Twitter for our Tomorrow Never Dies episode. Thanks for your kind words, David. Um, and as I said, we'll uh, go back to obviously the comments about Mr. Sean Connery in our Cube Branch section. Phil, are you now going to fully and properly celebrate the life of Sir Sean Connery by finally watching Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade and indeed the other Indiana Jones films, but not the fourth one because it's rubbish? Uh, Yes, I I think it's probably right that I should now watch more Sean Connery films. I mean, I have seen The Man Who Would Be King and Entrapment. don't know why I've, I've watched Entrapment, but I have. And I've seen things like The Rock. So I have seen some Sean Connery based vehicles, but I, sh- I shall certainly have to put Indiana Jones on the list. Okay, very good. So we're unfortunately, we can't delay it any longer. We've got to take a look at the, the film synopsis. So it's over to Adam and Alan. What do they have for Casino Royale 67? Yep, here goes nothing. So Casino Royale, produced not by Eon Productions, but by Charles K. Feldman, based, of course, on the very first James Bond novel. Now, five directors are officially credited on this, and apparently a sixth director also uh, made key sequences, the most famous of which are John Huston, uh, the great director of The Maltese Falcon and Treasure of the Sierra Madre, and also Val Guest. Uh, and Sir James Bond, nominally played by Sir David Niven, although there are about five or six other different people who are also playing James Bond. More on that later. The film was released in April 1967, so we're back to 21 years before Pierce Brosnan's breakout performance in the action classic Taffin. Then maybe you shouldn't be living here! Casino Royale was made on a budget of eventually $12 million. Uh, It spiralled out of control during the production, and this is incredibly expensive for a film at that time. It does, however, go on to make $41.7 million, so it was a financial success, although not a success on the scale of You Only Live Twice, the next official Bond film released two months later, and the critics at the time absolutely panned it for its self-indulgence. So, to see just how self-indulgent it is, let's hand over to Alan. Two weird cartoon titles and annoyingly catchy music by, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Burt Bacharach. Stuttering celibate Sir James Bond, played by his newness, is depressing that the word secret agent have become synonymous with sex maniac, is exploded out of his Joe Exotic retirement to become the new head of MI6 after surviving a trip to dodgily toupeed XM's house of horny Scottish sex spots. A veritable Eden, is it not, gentlemen? Daddy called me his little thermometer. After a race against Pat Mustard's killer milk float, Sir James renames every old and new agent James Bond 007 to confuse the enemy Smirsh, including Hammer Horror Cast Off the Detainer and Walking Wooden Plank Cooper. Beauty's only skin deep. How about some skin diving? Sir James also gets millionaire-s Honey Rider to recruit Austin Powers lookalike master gambler Evelyn Tremble. Isn't Evelyn a girl's name? No, it's my name. And they spend the night indulging in Randy Slow-Mo, revolving beds, and a great dictator costume party. In another completely random tangent, Sir James's belly-dancing daughter Marta and disgruntled cabbie Bernard Cribbins drive to West Berlin to bring down robot Ronnie Corbett's sex spy school. This is your mother's room. What an enormous bed. The German army was very large in those days. <laughs> 
after blowing up Kronstein in a phone box, Roly-Poly the Shifra, played by Orson Welles, finally takes on Bond, or Tremble, in Casino Royale. But the Shifra's also auditioning to be the new Paul Daniels. I require a willing female volunteer to be levitated. And because it's Peter Sellers, Tremble starts doing a range of dodgy accents. We mustn't forget that. The beggar who is sitting in the marketplace, he is completely deaf. After cameos from Sterling Moss and Peter O'Toole, you're the finest man that ever breathed. Smirsh kills Lashifa and Vespa kills Tremble. Now everyone goes to Casino Royale because Marta got abducted by a flaming flying saucer and Smirsh mastermind Dr. Noah turns out to be Sir James's nephew Jimmy, played by young girl enthusiast Woody Allen. I have a very low threshold of death. My doctor says I can't have bullets enter my body at any time. But he gets flirted to death by the detainer who feeds him an atom bomb aspirin which blows up and kills the entire cast of about seven different films in one, including some 007 sea lions. <laughs> the end. Jesus wept. Thanks a lot, uh, Adam and Alan. So that film synopsis, of course, is to uh, to help our listeners understand, have a clearer picture of the film. But I'm not sure in this case it particularly helps. I think the the shorter version, perhaps just as confusing as the uh, the two hour and ten minute version. So this film, quite an experience, I'd say. Uh, unfortunately, an experience that's uh, generally not a very pleasant one. I guess it was always going to be difficult having a, a coherent story when they have multiple directors and stories of Peter Sellers and Orson Welles not getting along. They can't even share the set time together. I I guess it would be unfair to judge this film by our usual Bond standards. It is an unofficial spoof entry into the series, after all. But uh, even with that in mind, I mean, wow, it's just, it's pretty dreadful, isn't it? The storyline is simultaneously meaningless and too complex. Uh, it has a cast of brilliant actors who give below par performances. I could forgive all of that if it was funny, and it just isn't very funny. But uh, what do you think, Phil? Am I, am I being too harsh? In a word, no. Uh, th uh, honestly, I've never seen this film before, and to be honest, I never want to watch it ever again. This this might be the worst film I've ever seen. Apart from the fact it makes no sense, and it seems to be, um, you know, it's kind of seven filmed all colliding with each other. There's sort of, you, you get introduced to characters, and then you be completely introduced to other ones. It's just, I, I understand there are certain films where you have to kind of, you really have to concentrate on them, this one, you have to watch it about 38 times before you can even get a grasp of what's happening. It's just, it's horrendously bad. I, I hasten to say this might be one of the worst films ever made. You, you finished. Um, yeah, you're not wrong. It, it, it is a mess. I mean, the critics of the time were correct. It, it's absolutely self-indulgent. The plot is all over the place. You've got so many big famous actors in it and their egos are all in battle with each other. It's way too long. I mean, I think generally it, you're a comedy film. You need to really have a very good reason to be going over 90 minutes. This is well over two hours. And yeah, you're, you're right, Martin, that there just a, sort of isn't any comedy in it. I mean, it's kind of a combination generally of very bad slapstick meets the sort of carry on film style sauciness, but not done with any kind of irony or knowingness. I mean, Austin Powers is doing very much a similar thing in terms of that kind of trippy, psychedelic, bright, colourful send up, but does it with a lot more knowingness and irony than this. It's completely absent. I must say, though, I didn't 
fully unenjoy it. I did find it sort of strangely entertaining. There are some zingers in it. I mean, you've got so many comedy legends contributing to writing bits of the script or certain characters that there are some good lines in it. And it is important to see it as in the context of its time. I mean, it is one of these sort of very big budget 60s epic ensemble comedies kind of like it's a mad, 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 mad world and those magnificent men and those flying machines. But yeah, in terms of it trying to be, you know, also a Bond film, which has a kind of intriguing story, it completely defeats its own purpose in, in being that kind of film. Yeah, I could understand what you mean, Adam. It's, sort of, it's trying to reach that zeitgeist of the time where obviously, you know, the spy genre and those those sort of different genres that you mentioned were kind of coming to the fore. You know, we were starting to see much more emphasis on blockbusters. It's difficult because it's it's sort of you want to sort of enjoy it, but it's it's things like even with Austin Powers, it's like even that is kind of over time, it's not really aged that well. I mean, obviously, we we kind of note Austin Powers as the better kind of spoof of Bond. This is an even worse version. It, it struggles for me, but I can sort of see that it is, it is a bit of a laugh, and it is sort of there are elements of it that can be quite insane. So I do concede your point, Adam, that there are that it can be sort of seen as quite an entertaining film in certain aspects. I think the advantage I had is I was watching it for the second time, so I sort of knew that the story doesn't make any sense and it is just best enjoyed kind of wallowing back into it and letting it wash over you. I disagree that the Austin Powers films haven't aged well. I think they've aged brilliantly because I think as a spoof, it's so tongue-in-cheek and laden with irony and and knowing of what it's doing that I think it, it still stands up very well. You're laughing, you know, with it and it is laughing with the things that it's sending up rather than at it. And that's kind of the problem with this one is that it sort of isn't doing that. It's just repurposing all of these Bond tropes like all of these kind of young sex pop women. And so it just feels a bit vulgar and brash, I guess. But also I think there's a sense that this is kind of, you know, um, the 60s was all about youth revolution. And, you know, it was a very much a young people's countercultural decade. And this kind of feels like it's a lot of old people trying to jump on that bandwagon and be cool along with the young people. And it just therefore comes off as being very much dad dancing for a lot of the film. For me, it kind of feels like a, a sketch show, doesn't it? More than a film. Just situations, things that are vaguely linked to Bond, sliced together uh, and they try and get a, a cheap gag that more often than not falls flat. So yeah, I think, I don't know, what do you reckon in terms of the structure of the film? Do you think it would have been better if they'd have just gone complete farce? I mean, it, t- it goes towards farce towards the end, doesn't it, with the uh, the cowboys and Indians coming in? Uh, should it have just gone that from that at the beginning? Should Because uh, it kind of, it tries to build a story at the beginning of doesn't it? And then then it completely loses it in the middle. Yeah, to be honest, I think it, it just loses it from the very start, really. I mean, the, the fact that M blows himself up when he's trying to bring Sir James Bond out of retirement and then sends a mortar attack on his own home, which then gets him killed. You know, this is the premise for the, the rest of the film taking place. I think it kind of starts as a farce. I, I think to be kind, I think it's misguided, I think is probably a good way to describe this film, perhaps. Probably, you're right, Martin, would have been a better film had it just been David Niven as a much older and completely different Bond to obviously the Sean Connery Bond. It would have been much more structurally tight and you could have, you know, you could have built a much better plot around it. But as an ensemble comedy, you've just got to look to something like Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which is obviously later and structured quite similar in that, you know, the Knights of the Round Table in that are very similar to all of the various James Bonds in this. But where Python and the Holy Grail works is that it sends each of them off on their own adventure, but it sort of intercuts them much better and much quicker. One of the problems with this is that doesn't happen. There's clearly loads of footage missing of the various James Bonds. Like we're introduced very early on to Cooper and the Detainer. 
who then completely vanish until the last scene because we're just off with Peter Sellers and then we're off with Marta Bond for a little bit. And so there's no coherence as to how all of those different James Bonds are being kind of cut together. And even within those scenes, there's clearly a car chase that is meant to happen after the showdown at the Baccarat table between Evelyn Tremble's Bond and Le Chiffre, which is just completely gone. We see him get into the Formula 3 car and then we literally cut to him in the torture chair. So yeah, on its own terms, it just gets so sidetracked by the stars who are in it but it doesn't have the discipline to cut its various plot strands together in a way that is coherent at this point after our general chat about the film we would go to the pre-title sequence interestingly this one does have a pre-title sequence but i'm not sure did i miss something or is this not related to anything that happens in the film we get peter sellers and uh, the character of mathis meeting in a in a schoolyard is it i don't know a nunnery <laughs> somewhere See, I just thought it was a car park. I, I, I didn't even get it was a, a school or anything like that. But yeah, no, no, it seems to be an old segue that just goes into these, you know, title credits. It's it's a very odd, you know, when we've considered the fact that, you know, most Bond opening title sequences are these grand, you know, openings where Bond is usually in some sort of threat and you get the great title music and things like that. You kind of almost expect them to do that, that would where the parody would start. You could have done it like a Shirley Bassey-esque ripoff almost and that probably would have been more authentic. But it's, it's it seems very downplayed, really. It's, it seems like a very um, staid and, and quite a quiet way to start the film. It is, but I think in context, it's it's getting a very quick introductory laugh from just the idea of Peter Sellers is playing James Bond. I mean, we've only had four official Bond films at this point, and Connery has been Bond in all of them. And so I think suddenly the idea that Peter Sellers is playing James Bond and he is just the great comic actor, he's Dr. Strangelove, um, it, it's just a very quick sort of laugh, and then it gets you into the world of this as a send-up, as a spoof. Um, in terms of those titles, though, what, what it does show off for the first time is the music of the film. And I do think Burt Bacharach's score is one of the only genuinely quite good things about this uh, film. I mean, the look of love, the song he penned for it was Oscar nominated. And it is a good soundtrack. It's incredibly catchy and earwormy. I mean, I've had the main title theme in my head ever since I saw it. But it kind of combines a sense of being authentically 1960s and quite cool, but also being funny and kind of witty and playful and lighthearted. And so I think he actually gets the tone that this film was going for much better than the film itself. And it is there from those titles onwards. Yeah, I'd go along with that, Adam. I think the tune is definitely still in my head after watching it. It's the only thing that's uh, remained with me. <laughs> Certainly the storyline didn't. But yeah, I'd go with that. I think the the song is actually quite good. It's like a nice jaunty tune, isn't it? It doesn't say James Bond to me, it's, but it does say, I guess it does say comedy, which is what this is supposed to be. As, as we've mentioned him, shall we talk a little bit more about Peter Sellers in this film? Because, again, just looking at his scenes and indeed the presentation of his character of Evelyn Tremble, huge influence on what Mike Myers later does with Austin Powers. He has the same kind of goofy look to him with those thick glasses and, and of course, strange costumes, although even stranger in this than, uh, than indeed in Powers. 
But it's interesting with Sellers in that he was actually quite offended that uh, at the idea that he could only play James Bond in a spoof. He fancied that he could actually play James Bond because he was famously a ladies' man and, of course, does go on to marry Britt Eckland, who would play a Bond woman in The Man with the Golden Gun. But, you know, he, he negotiated a very hefty fee for this and his ego runs riot while he's on the film because he's, on the one hand, trying to play a straight James Bond, you know, to prove that he could do it. But at the same time, he's got Terry Southern in, who co-wrote Dr. Strangelove, to rewrite all of his dialogue and make sure he was also getting the lion's share of the laughs. But it's not unentertaining. I mean, I think Sellers is one of, if not the great comedy actors of all time. So he's always good value, but it is very strange in this film, I feel. Yeah, I think you're right, Adam. I think in terms of his mannerisms and in terms of, you know, the way that he's trying to play the character at certain points, you, know, you do get the sense that Sellers could have probably been quite a good Bond, really, because, you know, he can match that sort of suaveness with the, the sort of espionage side. I think it was always going to be a tricky role, but I think Peter Sellers was probably the best person to, to kind of try and play that role with sort of a spoof Bond. Yeah, I certainly got the sense that he was uh, like a prototype Austin Powers, that scene where they're on the uh, the bed, the revolving bed, spinning around. I think he even does a little laugh that sounds like Austin Powers. Uh, so uh, you, you get a sense, I mean, I wasn't sure what else was going on in that scene. I had no idea what was happening, but but I, I got that it was, it was very similar to the uh, the Austin Powers character. Well, he does, he does play very well the idea that he is trying to be quite suave and sophisticated, but he's also just this nerdy, uh, you know, probability expert, so he's massively out of his depth. And yeah, the revolving bed in that seduction scene, which, again, great music from Burt Bacharach, that's where the look of love is used, and a lot of very strange slow-mo, and the strange costume party where he's dressing up as Napoleon Bonaparte and Adolf Hitler. But yeah, in the performance, he, he is, on the one hand, trying to be very cool and Bondian, but on the other, he's actually rubbish and he doesn't have a clue what he's doing and he's messing everything up. But Sellers, again, he's sending the film up as he's in it. I mean, he even works in that line about, you know, after the, the weird dress-up thing, I even put up with that strange costume party for some reason. Like, he's, you know, he's kind of aping the film as he's doing it. And so it's a very kind of meta performance in a strange way. Yes, yeah, I think you're right, Adam. I think it's, it's interesting the sort of dynamic that sort of Peter Sellers has with different members of the cast as well. Obviously, you know, we see that Ursula Andress, famously, who was obviously only rider in Doctor No, kind of comes into this film as well. So there are sort of genuine Bond connections as well. But it's it's interesting how kind of Peter Sellers and, and some of the other cast members kind of play off with each other. What did you guys think? Do you think that... Um, you know, obviously Ursula Anderson, Peter Sellers, do you think that was quite a good kind of comedy relationship or do you think it would think Ursula Anderson adds anything to this film? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think she does add to this because obviously, you know, her being in it as a true Bond woman and an incredibly glamorous and, and in this very wealthy Bond woman contrasts again with the fact that James Bond is being nominally played by Peter Sellers. So it does, it enhances the comedy of what's going on in those scenes, I think. But also she, she's kind of given as Vesper Lynch, uh, Andrus is given a slightly better character in this, weirdly, than, than she was as Honey Rider in a strange way. I mean, first of all, I don't think she's dubbed in this one. I think she's using her own voice, but I wouldn't be certain on that but also she's allowed to play more of a femme fatale because Vesperlind is not just a sort of double agent who falls in love with Bond in this one but a genuine double agent who is you know who is kind of trying to manipulate the situation to her advantage and is and is genuinely a sort of wolf in sheep's clothing yeah, and there are quite a few links with the uh, the official Bond franchise. We get the return of some actors, some of our favourite actors, such as Burt Kwok. Uh, and we do get so, some of the jokes do derive from the actual series as well. So the uh, the poison pen letter 
if you remember that was a joke in From Russia With Love as well and they use it here uh, I guess that in that scene they're kind of making fun of the joke but it doesn't really work very well I feel like just come up with a, a better joke for this film right and I, mean, I get that they're trying to make a spoof version of, uh, of Bond I don't really know where I was going with that point but that's what this film does to you but you are right. And actually, that Q branch scene in general is quite interesting, because if you think about in context, we've had Thunderbolt. So we know that there's that slightly spiky relationship between in the true Bond films, Q and Connery as Bond. Um, and there is a little bit of Bond taking the mickey out of the elaborateness of these gadgets, but probably not to the extent, actually, that we see in, in this one, where they're very openly deriding some of these kind of ridiculous, bizarre gadgets. So actually, the Q branch scene in this weirdly predicts the Roger Moore era in how puntastic it is. So there's a strange way in which perhaps this film kind of lays the foundation work for that. I mean, I'm not sure it does. I don't think the, the Bond producers really take any inspiration from this film whatsoever. But it is interesting that, you know, a similarity is there if you look for it. Yeah, I saw some trivia that said they made a mistake in the editing of that Q scene where he looks at the watch, the video watch, it's supposed to be Evelyn Tremble as Bond looking at Q's assistant who's in the same room. And then the line which stays in the film is, oh, it's like it's like you're in the same room, which would have worked as a joke. But in the editing, they put Vesper Lynn's face on the video of the watch so that the line doesn't make any sense. The film is lacking jokes anyway. Get it. If you've got a good joke in there, make sure that you get it right. Yeah, I, th I think that's one of the many problems of this film. But no, I do agree, guys. I think it is that cue scene is, is probably one of the better moments of the film, particularly because it's kind of this sort of hidden world of the Bond sort of training camp that you also see, you know, this idea that there's multiple Bonds being trained up and it's their sort of intensive uh, military courses where they're having to sort of smash uh, blocks of wood and, you know, they're, they're going into high stakes missions. But then we also get that sort of farcical moment where um, Coop and the detainer are then tasked with sort of doing his training session where he has to disarm the beautiful women to stop him being seduced. So we start to get the plot developing again. Yeah, and interesting just then that you bring up the sort of training of Coop to, to kind of be the women, the, the man rather that all women want to be with, and yet he is trained to reject all of their advances after some extreme vetting from uh, the daughter of Miss Moneypenny, in that this film does sort of constantly try and have its cake and eat it in terms of it, it's sort of making a joke of the weaponization of sexuality. You know, I mean, the, the big plot is, is, is all about sort of Jimmy Bond as played by Woody Allen, trying to eliminate from the world every man who is taller than him so that he can have his pick of the women and in a way this is an interesting idea because it's sort of spoofing the goldfinger thing which which ultimately is a film that is solved by james bond forcing himself on a lesbian in the barn to save the world but yeah again the problem is the film is pulling in two different directions in that while sort of trying to make that sort of satirical point about the real bond films it's indulging in scantily clad women to a far greater extent than the actual bond films do and again, with the watch thing that you've mentioned, Martin, I think the sort of problem is it's almost trying to show off the technology and the expense of the film and the special effects budget rather than making the jokes work. So that's the problem, really, in a nutshell, isn't it? It's the film is caught between trying to be funny, but also trying to show off its extremely big budget. Yeah, and it, in doing trying to do the, those two things, it fails in, in both of them, really, doesn't it? I was uh, I was going to mention the actual. Uh, I mean, the film is Casino Royale, but we don't get much of the uh, the actual casino, do we? We get Le Chiffre played by the great Orson Welles, who apparently had written into his contract that he had to perform those ridiculous uh, magic tricks. What did we reckon to his character? Because uh, it seemed a little bit pointless to me. 
Yeah, perhaps, but I think he adds an element of light relief to this film. You know, it's, it's so bombastic the way that he portrays that. It's so sort of off the wall. It, I think that Orson Welles kind of, he, he's had better performances, let's say, but I think he was he was fully aware of what he'd signed up to and he was probably playing it up a little bit too much, but I think he's probably one of the better performances in this just because it's so ridiculous and so bombastic. You're absolutely right when you say he knows what he's doing. I mean, very much like Peter Sellers, he has an agenda and an ego in this film, there's Orson Welles, and he is just going to get out of it what he wants, namely a big payday. I mean, it's it's important to understand Welles in context because he's, he's, I think, one of the most fascinating people that has ever worked in Hollywood. One of the great film directors of all time. I mean, his very first film was Citizen Kane, and it single-handedly revolutionised what films looked like and how they were made but also because the storyline incurred the wrath of uh, William Randolph Hearst, the big press magnate. He was completely hounded out of Hollywood and he was never trusted with a big budget again. And after that, Wells is always trying to make these incredibly radical, interesting films, but he's always thwarted in them. He never quite has enough money. And so what he does, particularly in this era and in, in the 50s is he takes big paycheck jobs in sort of big budget films in order to try and subsidize the making of his own films so he's in here for a big paycheck and he's not taking it seriously in fact he is quite overtly taking the piss that's why he says he wants to do some magic tricks in it um which is a shame because you sort of do think on the one hand he's a great film director and six people have a hand in this and you've got awesome wells on the set and you just think well, maybe we should let him do a bit of it. He's he's better than all of these other, you know, rank amateurs we've got running around. But also you just think had Wells played a true Bond villain in the true series, it might have been really spectacular. I mean, you can totally buy him as, as a Goldfinger or even as an incredibly physically intimidating Blofeld. Also, just to mention it, what exactly is Tremble's master strategy for winning every game of Baccarat? Because... They only play three hands. I mean, the, the true game goes on all night. Here, it's, it's literally just three hands and you're done. Here's a magic trick. Here's some flags and sparklers. Here's an Indian accent. Personally, I need uh, Giancarlo Giannini there to explain what's happening in, in the whole film, basically, not just in the casino. <laughs> Can I just also point out that sequence in the Scottish Highlands, just going back a little bit, is probably one of the most bonkers in cinema history. I mean, I have no idea who thought that was a good idea, but somebody clearly thought, yes, let's get the worst Scottish accents ever, and then let's get some bizarre flying rockets that Bond has to shoot out of the sky. That just sets the tone. This film is completely mental. I thought you meant the boulders, Phil, the ridiculous game. I have no idea what they're doing on this. It's difficult to tell what, what area of the film you're talking about. I just The whole thing is just, it's indescribable at times. Yeah, and, and going back sort of to Monty Python and um, and Austin Powers again, that, that whole Scotland sequence is incredibly reminiscent of, um, obviously it came before it, but the, the castle of the sex pots in Monty Python and the Holy Grail that Galahad ends up in. Uh, and also, um, I guess, the sort of fembots from Austin Powers. Um, but yeah, you're right, just the, the combination of strange Scottish accents, even stranger slapstick, and also a lot of creepy dad love going on. I mean, th that idea that his naked daughter is in the bathtub to check the temperature, and then we get it recurring later on when Marta Bond kind of goes to Bond and says, hey, if you weren't my dad, you'd be kind of hot. And you just think, oh, this is really creepy. Should we, uh, should we move on to the uh, 
I guess, the main villain. Is he the main villain? Who knows? Woody Allen, I think, is one of the brighter lights of the film, probably because he got to ad-lib quite a lot of his own lines, so they were genuinely a bit more funny than the rest of the script. But I think he he does okay, doesn't he? He's introduced to us as uh, Jimmy Bond, and we get that kind of sketch-like scene, which is relatively funny. He's about to be killed by the firing squad, and then uh, jumps over the wall uh, just to be faced with another firing squad, uh, killing someone else. Uh, so I thought that works okay as, as a sketch. Uh, and then he comes back to towards the end as the the main villain, Dr. Noah. But uh, what did we think to Woody Allen's performance? I think for me, he doesn't make the film make any more sense, but uh, he makes it a little bit funnier. Yeah, uh, yeah, at least he's trying, I suppose. I guess he's sort of, again, this goes back to the same issue, though. It's kind of because there were focuses so much on David Niven, Peter Sellers and Orson Welles. Woody Allen's largely forgotten in this almost until the very end, when obviously the big reveal is that he's supposedly the big villain and that he's got this master plan. But again, it's kind of the other problem is like we don't actually know what the master plan is until about the last half an hour. Because basically because you're going through all these bizarre escapades, you're having to work out what the actual big plan of Smirch or, you know, of Dr. Noah is. Yeah, again, in context and looking at the clashing egos in the film, it's important to remember Woody Allen's very near the start of his career at this stage. I mean, he was kind of probably more known as a stand-up comedian at this point than, you know, the, the film director and the sort of screen comedian that, that obviously now he's he's revered as. Um, again, it, it's quite clever casting, isn't it? It's, you know, Bond villains, as we know them for real, are very intimidating presences, and Woody Allen just isn't. Perhaps it uh, predicts Spectre as well, in that the main villain is a member of Bond's own family. I don't know. Maybe they uh, they got that particular plot point from, uh, from this Casino Royale as much as the other. I must admit, I'm not generally a big fan of Woody Allen, um, and, and it's not a it's not a political thing. I've just never particularly liked him as a filmmaker or a screen presence. But he does land a few zingers in this. It's true. I'm almost more interested and impressed by the set design of Smirsh's lair because there's a lot of trippy psychedelia going on, and that's particularly to the fore in that villainous in that villainous base, which is underground, and they're going through sort of eyeballs and in long Freudian corridors. Um, so I'm almost more impressed by what's surrounding Woody Allen than Allen himself. Yeah, I mean, I, I do agree with you to the extent, Adam. I think, you know, going into that ending, traditional Bond films, that's always been kind of, most of them have been kind of the big set pieces where it's the standoff between Bond and the villain. Obviously, in this one, we get the uh, the return to Casino Royale where Bond and his daughter must vanquish Jimmy Bond or Dr. Noah in this case. Um, via, fl- with- via flying saucer, let's not forget. <laughs> Yes, let's not forget also the uh, the flying saucer, which which completely adds to the film. You know, let's let's not forget that that in, incredibly important scene where, for no apparent reason, a uh, flying saucer lands in the middle of London. The 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 final scenes of the film kind of per- perhaps reflect what they they probably wanted to do earlier on, which is it goes very slapstick and it goes very farcical. I'll be honest, I didn't actually laugh at the end scene, but I probably did smirk a little bit. I don't know, what did you guys think of the end? Did you think that it reflected what the film should have been from the very start? Uh, no, definitely not. It's it's an absolute mess and I've no idea what's going on in it. I mean, Mel Brooks actually at the end of Blazing Saddles sends up this kind of epic comedy finale very well when they sort of, they suddenly break the fourth wall and all the cast of Blazing Saddles are invading all the other sound stages. So like they end up beating up everyone in a Fred Astaire ballroom dance thing. And it's very much that, but but not played with the same comedy. Uh, what I will say is the US in this are much more helpful than Felix Leiter normally is in the normal Bond films. I mean, at least they've sent in a full-on cavalry led by John Wayne with uh, horses. Felix Leiter would have just like parked up outside in Bernard Cribbin's cabin, just waited for someone to escape, and, and then they're just dragged out of the back entrance when he's not looking. 
Well, I guess that's something we haven't mentioned as well. The fact there's so many sort of comedy alumni in this, you know, the fact that we've got Bernard Cribbins, uh, Ronnie Corbett, um, and John LeMessurier, who would all, all go on to kind of be British comedy legends, really. Yeah, what 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 actually is going on with Ronnie Corbett in this? Is he a robot? I could never quite understand what what the point of that was. Well, and he does have certain desires for Meta Bond and before that her mother, so he must be partly human. I think the film misses a trick in that the final reveal of Doctor Noah ought really to have been Ronnie Corbett just kind of sat on a big armchair. <laughs> Hello, Mister Bond. <laughs> let me let me tell you a, a small story happened the other day. <laughs> Yeah, that ending would have uh, made more sense than what we get, I think, Adam. Based on his general horniness and height in this, did the real Bond producers make a mistake not casting him as Knickknack? I mean, the the interplay with him and uh, Christopher Lee would have been something to behold. You know, the sort of, it'd probably be quite a grumpy butler, let's put it that way, if it was Ronnie Corbett. But again, just kind of going back to it as well, obviously, I think this is one of the strangest endings to a film as well, the fact that they all go up to heaven having been killed at Casino Royale. Did you, could you guys make head or tail of that? It was, it was just so weird, the fact that they all just get blown to smithereens at the end. Well, Woody Allen doesn't go up to heaven. He's, he's sent down to hell, isn't he, by um, whoever it was, Honey Rider, I think, uh, as Woody Allen will in real life. Seven games bonds at Casino Royale They came to save the world and win the gal at Casino Royale Six of them went to a heavenly spot Seven fun is going to a place where it's terribly hot Well, the ending of the film, it, in one way, I, I kind of get... It feels like they knew what they were doing by the end in the sense that they knew that they had a complete mess beforehand. And so they just completely turn it into a farce and they do interslice with uh, kind of stock images, don't they, of, uh, of old films, of the police, of the cavalry coming. Uh, but yeah, generally I'd agree with you, Phil. I think uh, it doesn't make any sense at all, does it? No, no, it doesn't. I mean, I mean, yeah, you're right, Martin. One thing to this film's credit is it does acknowledge that it's a mess and it does sort of, you know, own up and hold its hands up and say, yeah, we, we've made a real mess of this. Can we go back to Bernard Cribbins? Because I, I do think he, he, he should have been in um, the real Bond film, shouldn't he, as a, as a kind of a handy associate of Bond? Just sort of, you know, in the Roger Moore era, whenever he's, he's most in need of rescue, Bernard Cribbins just rocks up in his taxi. You know what? I've had an idea of what character. He could have been Q's brother. He could have played Q's brother. He was like just basically like a downtrodden taxi driver. But the thing was, the taxi was like gadget laden. So basically, whenever Bond was in strife, Bernard Cribbins would just turn up with the gadget laden taxi to get him out of trouble. That's that's where they missed the trick, I think. Well, I mean, the closest we get to a taxi driver in official Bond is Sir Godfrey Tibbet. So I would have liked Bernard Cribbins would have been excellent in that role of you to a kill. He doesn't look dissimilar from uh, Patrick McNee, to be fair, so you've probably covered it. I think actually Bernard Cribbins ought to have come back in uh, Die Another Day, and when uh, John Cleese is uh, revealing the invisible car, Bernard Cribbins just starts landing some punches on him. I'm not a violent man, Mr. Faulty! What was, what was your favourite cameo on the cameos we mentioned? What was your favourite from an actual Bond alumni? I mean, Martin, I'm assuming that yours is Sandor. Pyramids! Appearing in an actual pyramid to watch the, the dance spectacular of Marta Bond. Of course it is. And he, well, he does get his standard one line as well, doesn't he? In, the, in this, I think he says, what does he say? He just says no, doesn't he? Because doesn't Peter Sellers ask him, does he, or uh, sorry, David Niven ask him, does he speak English? He just says, no. 
Was that him? I thought that was a different guy. I don't think that was him. Oh, isn't okay, it just like sit? Isn't it just sit here or wait here? Possibly. I think his work uh, in the Spy Who Loved Me is is better. See, personally, I enjoyed the fact that Kronstein returns. You know, and the fact that he he has more of a uh, a higher leading role. Let's say, obviously, we, we spoke highly of the character in uh, in From Russia with Love, and also the actor returns with Smirsch for this uh, film and then obviously gets rather un- unceremoniously blown up in the phone booth. Well, of course, he does finally share um, a scene with uh, he's Spectre number five, isn't he, in From Russia With Love. Was Burt Kwok Spectre number three in uh, You Only Live Twice? And of course, they're in the same scene, that, that weird auction scene, which should be funny. Like, it sets itself up as being quite funny and that they're all going to do something physically different to uh, bid on all the auction lots. Like, one lot's going to stand up if they auction. One's going to sit down if they're going to auction. And then the scene just doesn't work at all. It's like you set up this really funny physical comedy bit and then you don't actually do it. You just have Burt Kwok yelling about how he's going to give you 10 million bags of rice. Maybe he's blown up in the phone box because Orson Welles just didn't like him. I've had enough of talking to this strange Czech actor. Do you think it's a, a better performance from Wells than, than his performance uh, as the villain in Transformers, the movie? I haven't had the pleasure of watching that, so uh, I don't know. <laughs> it was the great Orson Welles final film performance, uh, voicing Megatron or whatever it is in the original 80s Transformers film. And when he was asked about it in interviews, he just said, I play a toy who kills a lot of other toys. Perfect for a Toy Story villain, if it had gone on a bit longer, with Timothy Dalton. Yeah, exactly, him and Dalton. Uh, Yeah, shame he died by then. Incidentally, my favourite cameo is um, the guy who's Q's assistant, who goes on to play Dennis Thatcher in For Your Eyes Only. It is a shame with all the animals that we don't get Max the Parrot in there somewhere. Maybe they could have taught Max the Parrot to have a bit of a sort of banter off with Woody Allen. Woody Allen, two cent cereals, Woody Allen, two cent cereals. No, no, I, I, I'm not seeing Cyril again. I'm, I'm just not going near that guy anymore. He's bad for my asthma. So we'll move on to the cars and gadgets. Perhaps uh, slightly thin in material here, but uh, what do we have, Phil? Can you swim? Yes, yeah, so that's what probably what will be the shortest cars and gadgets in history. We do sort of get a, a wide array of cars kind of in the background. The main sort of cars that we see, sort of the various James Bonds driving, um, are of course Sir David Niven in the Bentley 3 litre, the 1923 Bentley, better known as the Bentley Blower. So, you know, we're going back to more of the references in the books. This also feeds in probably the only car chase of the entire film that actually makes it in. So, so this is where Bond is being pursued by one of the Smirsh women and uh, we get that odd sequence where they're kind of in the control room with the giant scale electric set to give us a, uh, a realistic view of where they're traveling offset with the uh, slightly unusual bedford mark ii milk van which was also used to try and kill bond the other kind of car to note is actually quite an unusual one it's the only kind of i believe to date the only racing car that's actually featured in a bond film and that is the team lotus 41 the formula 3 car which peter sellers as uh, evelyn tremble slash james bond gets into at the casino royale at this period in time motor racing is kind of dominated by british drivers in particular kind of Jim Clark, Graham Hill and Sir Sterling Moss are all the sort of three main protagonists of Formula One. So it's a little in-joke suggesting that because Sir Sterling Moss was kind of prone to crashing and, and never actually won the world title, 
there was kind of this little joke from Peter Sellers at the time, which would tragically a year later, Jim Clark was actually killed in a Formula 3 race for Lotus at the, uh, the Nürburgring. So there is a sort of a tinge with a sense of sadness in a way of what would happen just a year later. But they're, they're kind of the main cars that we see the Bond characters driving. The only other kind of honourable mention in terms of cars is the Volkswagen Transporter um, pickup, which is used at the Scottish Highlands by these Smirsh henchwomen to fire the uh, rocket-mounted bombs that are sent to try and kill Bond. So just to go on to quickly some of the gadgets that we see, we get to see the Q branch layer again, the fact that, um, you know, there's a lot of these interesting gadgets, particularly the sort of the bodysuit that the Evelyn Tremble is given, um, which is kind of reflective of sort of Connery-esque bonds and also going into some of the survival kits that we see in kind of the Moore and uh, Brosnan era. There's also kind of a few interesting gadgets that also make appearances in sort of future Bond films. Things such as the cigarette that Jimmy Bond uses to escape the firing squad is very reminiscent of the uh, exploding cigarettes that Sean Connery would then use a few months later in You Only Live Twice. There's also things like the bagpipe machine gun, which Vespa Lind uses in the sort of dream sequence. Now, we see something similar in the Highland sequence in The World Is Not Enough, where one of the uh, Q lab assistants uses bagpipes to, as a machine gun and a flamethrower. So these are kind of the main gadgets that are used throughout the film. But the other couple of small ones to mention is also the uh, the Rolex watch, which is both used as a radio and video transmitter. Again, this would kind of sequence what would feature in future Roger Moore films, particularly with things like Octopussy. We also get some of the more ridiculous. We've kind of mentioned the Smirsh flying saucer that takes uh, Martabond. And we've also got the bizarre casino table mounted gun, which James Bond uses towards the end of the sequence to shoot some of the uh, casino revelers. So there's kind of a mix of gadgets that will, will sort of be used in the future and kind of gadgets that are completely farcical and fanciful. Okay, thanks a lot, Phil. Uh, personally, the the milk float that's used in this, I would have liked uh, Necross at the wheel. Just kill Sir James Bond at the beginning and um, finish it. Phil, had they actually got round to filming that epic car chase between uh, Le Chiffre and uh, Evelyn Tremble in his Formula in his Formula Three car, what in your wildest dreams would that have looked like? Well, the trouble is the film's so bonkers. I, I can imagine it would have been like a Willy Wonka style. You know, the scene where in the Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory where they go through the uh, the magic tunnel where it just all goes to sort of psychedelic kind of Doctor Who-esque, you know, visions. They could have probably gone down the wacky races route or something like that, you know, had that had that sort of very comical cartoonish style. See, I think it would have been good if, if as you say, they'd just gone down the wacky races route and a load of other very recognisable cars just sort of start pulling up alongside them as they're racing along. So, like, Sellers is there in, like, some goggles and then, like, Steve McQueen just sort of rocks up next to him and then speeds by. And then maybe the anthill mob from Diamonds Are Forever, you know, I got a brother! Like, they sort of pop up, but then, like, go over a cliff. Yeah, because you could have had, like, Ben-Hur's chariot, so you could have had just, like, random vehicles just come in. That would have been much better. Yeah, exactly. Charlton Heston just passes on a chariot. Yeah, that would have been much better. And then he looks the other side, and it's just John Wayne riding along on a horse. Going too fast in them glasses there, pilgrim. Okay, so uh, next up, we'll go to Not Beyond the Book. I mean, could you imagine a video game of this film? That would be even more mental than the, the film itself. But we go back, a return of By the Book. <laughs> Over to you, Adam. Why don't you acquaint yourself the manual? You be able to shoot through that in a couple of hours. Just took a few seconds, Q. 
Yeah, I accidentally retired this section a couple of weeks ago, but but here we are anyway. Um, so yeah, the rights to the first Bond novel, Casino Royale, were sold separately by Ian Fleming uh, to the rest of the rights, which went to, of course, Harry Saltzman and Albert R. Broccoli, and were sold much earlier. So the rights changed hands a couple of times in the 1950s before they arrived with producer Charles K. Feldman who originally actually wanted to produce a completely serious and competing adaptation of Casino Royale. Uh, he got uh, Howard Hawks uh, potentially signed up to direct, who's like a great sort of classic Hollywood director of film noirs like The Big Sleep and uh, screwball comedies like Bringing Up Baby and indeed westerns like Rio Bravo most famously. And of course he comes back again, wanted Cary Grant to play James Bond as everyone sort of did at the time. But that all sort of fell through um, finally when he approached Sean Connery, who was already playing James Bond with a million dollar offer to play Bond in this competing production. Uh, it was only really when Connery turned that down that he decided he'd sooner go down the spoof route and not directly compete with the official Bonds. But anyway, in terms of the book, um, obviously this bears absolutely no resemblance to anything that Fleming wrote. Of course, the general wackiness of the film being the main reason, but also, of course, this is nominally Sir James Bond is at the very end of his career, and in the book, of course, he is at the very beginning. He has only just become a double O. There are some interesting similarities with the book, though, and things that are the same as the book which are not the same in the Daniel Craig Casino Royale. So as in the book Vesper is a double agent although not a reluctant one who falls in love with Bond in this but actually much more of a femme fatale acting on her own interests. Smirsch, Ian Fleming's version of the Russian intelligence service finally make an appearance in this. I mean they appear sort of mentioned as being Rosa Klebb's former spy masters in From Russia With Love, but they don't really appear in any sense in uh, an official James Bond film. They do appear in this. As in the book, Casino Royale is located in France as opposed to Montenegro. At the table, they are playing Baccarat, as in the novel, and not Texas Hold'em Poker. Uh, Le Chiffre's uh, money problems in this do stem from, from his, uh, his investment in a string of brothels which have collapsed, as is the case in the book, and it's not from having lost the terrorist money on the stock market, as in the film. Um, another interesting thing is when we get to the torture scene between uh, Tremble's Bond and Le Chiffre, uh, again, they sort of make a joke out of the fact that um, the torture chair has a hole in the bottom of it. I think Orson Welles has that line, oh, it needs reupholstering next week. But of course, it, it is a reference to the fact that the chair has a hole in the bottom of it for torture purposes in the book. And actually, on the throne that they put Peter Sellers in is a golden carpet beater. And this is a reference to the book because it is a carpet beater which is used to bash the underside of James Bond in Casino Royale, as opposed to the knotted rope that Mads Mikkelsen would use much later on. I guess the only other thing to say is it is actually a slightly smarter plan in this uh, film of Sir James Bond's to send Evelyn Tremble to play Le Chiffre rather than just a, a secret agent who's good at gambling. We talked when we were reviewing the real Casino Royale that this is incredibly risky staking all of this um, government money on a guy who might not win against this master gambler. In this instance, they've sent an actual probability expert who's written a whole book on how to win at Baccarat to beat uh, the enemy. And so this is actually a much more sensible idea than just sending the real James Bond to do it. So credit where it's due. So James Bond did have a good idea there. Okay, and the, uh, the next section is, is also another return, a return of uh, that's not okay anymore. It 
now this section i guess you could say the whole film is not okay anymore all 140 minutes of it it probably wasn't okay in 1967 i think the reviews kind of uh, speak to that but maybe a little bit more specificity is needed for for this section we've spoken about the the very uncomfortable incestuous vibes that we get at the start of the film with bond meeting the women in the mansion and uh, they mentioning that they used to bathe with their father we also get uh, bond meeting his daughter matterbond and we get that uh, that line about if you weren't my dad i might fancy you not funny at all so completely unnecessary for the uh, the film and uh, also as we've mentioned we kind of get the contradictory messages this film is attacking the bond women being uh, gratuitous in places but uh, then this film itself is uh, even more gratuitous than the actual official bond series we also get of course peter sellers comedy genius of his time but uh, very much of his time i guess some of his random stereotyped accents and impressions in the right context might work but certainly there is no context in in this film and uh, at the beginning of the film of course we get all those scottish stereotypes uh, which i guess are used later in the austin powers with the, the fat bastard character but they don't certainly don't work in uh, in casino royale 67 and uh, maybe one other stereotype we get is the kind of over-the-top, are-you-being-served character assistant for dice in the queue section. That's rather uncomfortable as well for modern viewers. But uh, I think that's a very brief summary. I don't really, probably best not to dwell on it, isn't it? Yeah, interesting you bring up Hadley, because, yeah, we, we haven't talked about him. I mean, it's a much lesser MI6 extended circle than it is in the later Daniel Craig ones, where even, as we've said, Bill Tanner gets quite a lot to do. Also, uh, daughter of Miss Moneypenny in this one at one point is, is just completely pimped out, I guess, is the way you'd put it, to try and, and seek out who the best lover is of all these uh, potential male agents. I mean, you can't imagine the real Miss Moneypenny being subjected to this. I mean, Lois Maxwell would have had an absolute fit. Caroline Bliss might have done it. With a bit of Barry Manilow playing in the background. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so it's uh, over now to uh, a special edition of Kill Branch. Phil, over to you. Yeah, thanks, Matt. As we mentioned at the, the start of the show, at time of recording, we were obviously many Bond fans across the world were given the sad news that um, Sir Sean Connery had died at the age of 90 on the 31st of October. Again, for m- many of the Bond fans, he was kind of the person that's, that's seen as the archetypal Bond actor. You know, he was the one that introduced Bond to the big screen in 1962 with Dr. No, and he then went on to um, appear in another six films after that but this this is kind of a very special Q branch just to kind of reflect on kind of our memories of, of growing up obviously watching the uh, the kind of Connery Bond films and just to mention some of your kind of fond memories as well we did have a huge contact from from sort of fellow Bond fans on Facebook and Twitter we, we probably won't be able to mention everybody's messages but you know thank you for for getting in touch with us and uh, you know and, and it's kind of very very moving to see the fondness that many fans sort of hold for Sean Connery so just to really quickly run through a few of the comments, and Mark Garland on Facebook mentions that he's sad to hear of the passing and that Connery was one of a kind, you know, the kind of the bond of bonds. We also have a lot of comments, you know, just saying how much of an impact Connery had had. So um, Patricia was mentioned that, you know, it's been quite a tough year. The fact we've lost on a Blackman, Diana Rigg, and now Sean Connery, you know, another great has, has gone, but he'll be forever young in our memories. We also had Pat Martimucci and Gavin Cowlings. So Pat was mentioned that he'll be very greatly missed, but his, obviously his memory will live on in the films. And um, it was a direct message to yourself, actually, Martin, with Gavin, who was mentioned that, do you think that Connery should be regarded as the best Bond of them all? Well, I think that was uh, well established before his death. I think he is 
he is the James Bond, isn't he? He's the original. I think it's uh, it's really sad that since we've started this podcast, we have lost so many of the the classic Bond actors. But yeah, it's it's, it's a really sad day, I think, to uh, to lose Sir Sean. It's kind of the mark of the man that he is so respected as an actor and as a person. He is well known, of course, best known for James Bond, but he has a massive back catalogue of uh, other films. I'm sure Adam can let us know. I'm sure there's many that I haven't seen as well uh, that I'd really like to. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess he was a relatively quiet man, wasn't he? He was uh, he was kind of overwhelmed a bit by the attention he got from the Bond role. Understandably, wanted to uh, move away and maybe not give so many interviews about the Bond character all the time. But uh, we'll always love him as Bond, or I certainly will. But I'd uh, love to go into his uh, his other films as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think in terms of him as Bond, there's no question he's the greatest. It's why I always shy away from the conversation, really. He is, I think, the only one who gets everything in perfect combination. The sly humour, the roguish charm, the physicality of the role, that edge of danger. Nobody gets it as well as he does, really. I just want to very quickly talk about Connery as a great screen actor, because I think like the greatest of all Hollywood stars... He has the naturalism and the believability when he's on screen to create really vivid characters full of vitality. And it's something beyond just the natural charisma he has as a star. He constantly transformed himself into his roles in a way that isn't really appreciated because obviously, as many people have made fun of, he always plays these characters of different nationalities with his Scottish accent. But just think about Bond. This is someone who came from the humblest origins imaginable, like born into effectively poverty into an Edinburgh tenement left school at 15, worked as a bricklayer, as a milkman, as a coffin polisher, worked his way up the Royal Navy through the ranks of, you know, bodybuilding contests. And then his big screen breakout performance is as an old Etonian, Oxford-educated gentleman spy. And when we talked in, in the Doctor No episode, we talked about the director Terence Young teaching Connery how to behave, how to wear tuxedos, how to move, how to talk. And of course, Fleming ultimately starts changing the character of Bond in the books because he's so impressed with how Connery was able to take on that role. And so... I I, I just wanted to make that point, really, that of of all those angry young men actors we've talked about who came through in the same generation, a lot of them just reinvented the the great classic theatre roles in their image and played angry young men working class roles to fit their working class origins. Connery didn't. He transformed into Bond. He had to transform into Bond. And he's never quite given enough credit for just how transformational that performance was. And, you know, his pedigree as an actor is clear in the fact that he makes films with Sidney Lumet, a director who's one of the great directors of actors that that there is around. Uh, And they make some amazing films together, a great paranoia thriller called The Anderson Tapes, team up with Dustin Hoffman for Family Business. And then he's part of the uh, ensemble of Murder on the Orient Express, which is, of course, Albert Finney Kincaid, another great angry young man actor playing Hercule Poirot. And so he's a great film star, of course, and he is the best of the Bonds. But it is worth just making that point that he's also a fantastic actor. And anyone who goes and watches him in The Untouchables or The Name of the Rose will sort of know that. But he's also someone who took himself lightly as well. And anyone who goes away and watches Zardoz and Highlander will also see that. So that's kind of the point I want to make, that, that we've not just lost one of the great film stars that's ever emerged from this country, possibly the greatest, but also one of the great screen actors who understood how to play characters on screen in a vivid and memorable way. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you, you're quite right in the fact that, in the sense that he was very much a grafter in terms of that generation, you know, one of the most gifted of, of that era and, you know and it's kind of of that golden generation of British actors we've kind of lost most of them now and you know it is a, a dreadful loss particularly because of the fact that you know for most Bond fans he is 
the man that made Bond what he is. You know, without Connery, we wouldn't have had the direction in which the franchise has, has taken, you could argue. I just wanted to finish off the Q branch this week with just a couple more comments from social media. So um, on Facebook, we had Don Knotts, who um, mentioned that obviously he was a huge fan of Sean Connery as well, and that um, he's actually going to look back at some of our podcasts of the um, the Connery films, just to kind of reminisce on, on you know, just what made some of the films so great. And I really wanted to mention as well on Twitter, we had a great comment from Matthew, who was mentioning that he's kind of our age as well, but um, he was saying that he kind of remembers fondly going to the cinema to watch a rerun of Goldfinger with his dad and you know seeing the impact of Connery as as a child and and seeing you know just how good a performance Connery gave and it also led to him um so whenever he went with his granddad to play sort of mini golf he'd always try and recreate the famous golf scene in Goldfinger obviously a lot of fans have have got fond memories of, of watching Connery as Bond and I think he will be greatly missed by so many. Okay, so it's on to the quiz now, the final section of today's episode. So over to you, Adam, with this week's quiz. No, 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 stop getting Bond wrong! Stop getting Bond wrong! Thank you very much. And so the quiz this week is called Casino Royale with Cheese. Uh, for no other reason than I just wanted to get that pun in there. So very simple quiz this week. Uh, I am going to list a series of meals and drink orders that James Bond in the official film series orders. All you've got to tell me is the film he orders each of these in. So obviously it's not going to be anything as easy as a vodka martini. Uh, there's not going to be caviar on toast because there are a couple of films where he has that. So um, I usually start with Phil. So Martin, we'll start with you. Question number one. In which film does James Bond eat souffle followed by stuffed sheep's head that would be octopusy that would indeed be octopusy correct phil your first question in which film does james bond eat a steak piz gloria well surely that's on a majesty's secret service it is indeed piz gloria being the giveaway there well done martin in which film does james bond drink foo yuck I think that's You Only Live Twice. I'm afraid it was The Man with the yeah. Golden Gun. Uh, I did try and put a little Roger say, Moore yeah. slant on that to, to yeah, help you out there. Good. That's uh, Mary Goodnight on her night of uh, nearly but not quite close but no cigar with Bond before the Benny Hill bit. They're treated to a, a bottle of foo yuck. So, Phil, in which film does James Bond drink Siamese vodka? I think that one's You Only Live Twice, isn't it? Yeah, unfortunately, mine. I think you might have handed him that one. Yeah, that's in uh, Mr. Asato's safe. Shyamuse vodka. Okay, so two points to Phil, one to Martin. But Martin, your next question. In which film does James Bond make and eat quiche de cabinet? That is a view to a kill. That is a view to a kill. He treats Stacey Sutton to his quiche de cabinet, or as he calls it, an omelette. Okay, so you've drawn back level, but Phil, you could go ahead... If you tell me, in which film does James Bond eat skewered lamb? Is that Casino Royale? It is, yes. It's, I mean, I don't know if it is skewered lamb, but uh, he has eaten the lamb and, and says retrospectively that it was skewered, so we'll take that. But yes, you pull ahead once again. So, Martin, you've got to get this one to stay in the game. In which film does James Bond drink a mint julep? Mm, I'm not sure about this one. It's going to have to be a guess. I'll guess for your eyes only. Phil's shaking his head. Phil, do you know? It's Goldfinger, isn't it? 
It is Goldfinger. They're all sitting, uh, swigging mint juleps on the Goldfinger stud farm. That was tricky. But it means, Phil, uh, incidentally, your last question would have been, in which film does Bond consume grilled soul with white wine? Ooh, is that not from Russia with Love? Yeah, it's on the train in from Russia with Love. So, Phil, a uh, convincing win there, I feel. Well done. You get to pick today's outro music. Well, I hadn't actually picked anything directly for this week, but I figured because we obviously lost to Sean, we'll pick uh, to Sean Connery um, in my life, his uh, cover of the Beatles. Excellent choice. So uh, that's it for today's episode. That was Casino Royale 67. We'll see you again next week where we'll be reviewing quite aptly a Sean Connery film, Never Say Never Again. In the meantime, take a look at our social media accounts. If you've got any questions or topics, as ever, do let us know via those social media channels or our email, rogermorescubbyhole at gmail.com. But that's it for this week. I was Martin. I was Adam. And I was Phil. But of all these friends and lovers, there is no one compares with you. And these memories lose their meaning. When I think of love as something new. Though I know I'll never lose affection for people and things that went before. I know I'll often stop and think about them. In my life, I'll love you more. In my life, I'll love you more.